This year, we launched a new Goop travel series called The Goop List. I wanted a way to share annually what I found to be the best of the best, from my favorite places to stay in Italy to a truly special spa in Costa Rica. If you are inspired to travel more this year, perhaps because you perused our recommendations on the Goop list, hosting on Airbnb is excellent for people who frequently travel. The beauty of hosting on Airbnb is that while you're away, someone else can get as much joy from your home as you do. Alongside frequent travelers, Airbnb is also great for those who have extra space or an in-law suite that isn't always being used. If you've stayed at an Airbnb before, you know the unique experience it offers. Now you can share that same experience with others while earning some extra income. To learn more about hosting on Airbnb, head to airbnb.com slash host. Don't hold anything too tightly. Just wish for it, want it, let it come from the intention of real truth for you, and then let it go. For me, our soul is like, it's unbound, it's limitless, but we will use words to limit ourselves. When people stop believing that somebody's got your back or Superman's coming, we turn to ourselves and that's where you become empowered. Courageous participation attracts positive things. I'm Gwyneth Paltrow. This is the Goop Podcast, bringing together thought leaders, culture changers, creatives, founders and CEOs, scientists, doctors, healers and seekers, here to start conversations, because simply asking questions and listening has the power to change the way we see the world. Today is no exception. I'll let Elise fill you in on her extraordinary guest. All right, over to Elise. Jaya is a somatic sexologist. For the past two decades, she's been studying what turns people on, she developed something called the erotic blueprints. It's an arousal map that reveals your specific erotic language. Because when it comes to sex, one size does not fit all. Jaya teaches us about the five erotic blueprints, energetic, sensual, sexual, kinky, and shapeshifter. And we learn about the shadow side of each one. Jaya explains how we can use these blueprints as a language to communicate and connect more deeply with ourselves and our partners. As Jaya explained, she's constantly questioning and discovering what's erotically possible, and she believes that there are infinite possibilities when it comes to sexual exploration. She helps people give themselves permission to be curious about and embrace their desires. She shows us that our sexuality is ever-changing, and that when we dare to explore it, we get an incredible opportunity to peel back our own layers and discover ourselves more fully. When you start going higher and higher into orgasmic bliss and you you start the, getting the neocortex offline, you start just like taking a plant medicine or a psychedelic, it can start to link up other parts of your brain and you can start to actually experience these other iterations of yourself and, and these archetypal energies. Let's get to my conversation with Jaya. So wait, so you're amazing all the time ever. Every day. <laughs> well, there's things that are ari- that arise that may be labeled as not amazing, but I see them as amazing. It's the translation. Yeah. No, it makes sense. It's a hard principle. It's a hard way to live in a way. But I'm assuming just based on what I know about you that you also probably have more sex than every single person 
in <laughs> the West, in the United States, <laughs> times five. And that might be why everything is amazing. Uh, that has something to do with it. One of my missions was to make everything orgasmic. Could I make everything in the world orgasmic? Even the things we judge as not orgasmic, could I translate it into orgasm? So that's been really fun. And I think it does contribute to having an incredible and amazing life is just that frame of mind that it's all love making and it's all amazing. That sounds like a lot of work. <laughs> no, actually, <laughs> it's a lot of fun. <laughs> when your homework is pleasure <laughs> and your philosophy is to put pleasure first, it actually is easy. So how did you get there? Because I feel like pleasure is so, like, I'm bad at pleasure. It's just not, it's not my first instinct. My first instinct is, like, doing and being productive. So, like, how are you raised? How are you just a pleasure capsule? How do you give yourself that permission? <laughs> that. I'm a pleasure capsule. Uh, like like your daily supplement, your O vitamin every day, your orgasmic vitamin. You should make that. <laughs> Absolutely. Uh, so it started actually, you know, like some people are just really gifted in playing an instrument or some people are really drawn to our accounting. Like I was the kid who told everyone where babies came from. Like I was like, no, 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 let me not, it's not storks. <laughs> let me tell you about the real deal. Like I went to the library when I was young. I loved the library, loved reading. And I just was very into and very curious about this topic. And so it's, it's really been a life study of how our bodies work I was super curious about asking all these questions about, okay, how, what happens here? Like, do I pee out of my clitoris? Like, you know, I'm asking all of these <laughs> questions. And I love Dr. Ruth. I remember seeing Dr. Ruth when I was young and I said to my parents, like, I want to be Dr. Ruth when I grow up. I want to help people with their sex lives. And I kind you know, I kind of hit it in fertility medicine for a little bit, but then I just like was like, nope, this is what I really want to do. I really want to work with pleasure. And fertility does have something to do with pleasure, although we've kind of separated them. But it all it all stemmed from this mission that I had very young of what is erotically possible. Like what can our bodies do? And I started playing with my body and playing with my instrument at from a very early age in that exploration in my teenage years and then just continued that. And it's been a lifelong continuation of what is erotically possible? What is orgasmically possible? What can we do? And, and I see it as unlimited. Like this mission, this journey for me is like, oh, I think I found the peak and nope, there's always more. So, and maybe I just, maybe this is so naive, but I feel like, you know, I have two young boys and I, I hope that they're liberated and enjoy their bodies. I certainly think that socially we feel much differently about boys and their bodies. And, mm -hmm. you know, my kids are constantly sort of like getting out of the bath and like shaking their penises at me. And like, there's a certain <laughs> freedom that they have that I feel like girls, we might sort of chastise out of them. Yeah. And um, we don't have the same relationship with our genitals as yeah. they do. Cause that, you know, when we're urinating, we don't necessarily touch ourselves. So there's a, there's a difference in growing up as a identified vulva bodied person, you know, as a woman 
there is a different relationship. And I think there's more shame about it. There's more shame about our bodies and the way that our bodies are supposed to look and more. And that falls into the conditioning and programming that we get based on gender, based on sexual orientation, based upon the current views of our culture that we grow up in. And so we get shaped from very early ages, even just a simple thing as, oh, go ahead and hug your grandma. You know, grandma loves you. Hug them when you don't. Right there right. is telling you to override your body. And it's something we've we've taught very much with our son is, you know, you don't have to hug anyone if you don't want to. And you can say no. You can high five instead of a hug. Like there's other options that you can do. Your body is your body and you have agency over your body. Yeah. And were you raised like that or did you come to all of that later? I came to a lot of that later. The consent conversation, of course, was not part of my lexicon growing up. And even in learning sexuality and being at the age of 19, I got very involved in Tantra and in Tantric sexuality. And even in those communities, there wasn't a lot of consent talked about. It was like, we're just you're just thrown into these exercises and thrown into just doing them. And so that consent conversation came much later as I went, wait a minute, there's something wrong with this picture. My body mm -hmm. doesn't feel good. My body is a no to that. Or, you know, like my mind and my body are at odds. Like my mind, my mind wants it to be a yes, but my body's a no. And how do I listen to that? And how do I reconcile that? And that became just a big piece of my own exploration, always looking at three things and setting up my container. One was what is it that I desire right now? What is coming up that I want to explore sexually? What are my no's? What are my boundaries within this exploration that I'm a no to? And the third thing, what are any unspoken assumptions, expectations, or programs that are running that I can look at before I go into this exploration that I may want to explore, examine, or expand beyond? Mm, yeah. And that is that sort of the where your sort of the erotic blueprint, like when where this emerged was sort of in studying this so acutely or or carefully and, and studying, I'm assuming, other people? Or will you take us through the five blueprints? I thought this was so fascinating. And I'm curious if if these are nature or nurture or if mm -hmm. we inhabit various ones at different times in our lives. Or can you just walk us through that that whole thing? Absolutely. So the blueprints were birthed out of, I have a specialized license, so I'm a somatic sexologist. And in the state of the California, a somatic sexologist is someone who can educate someone about their body through the body. So it's much more of a hands-on learning experience. And so over time, my clients would come to me and I'd notice not everyone has the same way of getting aroused. So I would see a lot of people who like had trouble getting aroused or had trouble feeling pleasure. Or they were numb to it. And it wasn't always a necessarily like a physical injury or an issue. Scar tissue plays a big role in that, of course. And there's I'm always looking at four things. Is it in the emotional body? Is it in the physical body? Is it in the energetic system? Or is it part of the biochemistry, someone's hormones? So I'm always looking at those four things. And as I was working with people, I started to notice that certain people were more turned on by other things, or they could they could reach arousal through certain pathways, but other people couldn't. And then in my own relationship with my partner, we were really struggling at the time that this came about, where I couldn't figure out how to turn him on. You know, I'm trying like all the things. I tried like strip tease class and like come home and strip tease is like, what are you doing? You know, <laughs> you know, I'm like trying all these different routes and modes that I know through my own blueprint. 
in the mix mat the mismatch there was that he he's turned on by something that I'm not and so I'm it's like languages you know if I'm speaking American English and he's speaking French we were missing each other completely during this time and so I started to just set up like how do we work compatibility wise and coupledoms and how are we working in terms of arousal and turn on and what heightens arousal and turn on and how do we understand each other better? So I set out to answer those questions. And I just started from working with so many people over so many years, started to really notice the patterns emerging. And that's where the five blueprints came from. Got it. So let's talk about the first energetic. Mm-hmm. You know so, them. Yay. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So the energetic is someone who's turned on by anticipation, space, tease, yearning, longing. They love to to long for things. And in that anticipation is where their arousal lies. So an example is like I was once hovering my hands over someone like way like three feet off their body and they went into full body orgasm and their eyes got really big and they looked at me and they're like, what is going on? And I said, well, you're just you're wired energetically. You're more turned on in the space between the touch than actually physical touch on your body. And so their superpowers are that they can have orgasms without being touched. They can play in that space of all that anticipation and tease. And they can go into these expanded states of consciousness and and have really orgasmic experiences on multiple dimensional levels. So like, like more of like a psychedelic experience, even some people report, or, you know, I I suddenly became like a an animal, or I became, you know, like I'm I'm a butterfly flying, you know, those kinds of like archetypal energies that they can tap into these other ways of being orgasmic. So that's very much their superpower. Let's take a quick break to talk about one of our partners. This year, we launched a new Goop travel series called The Goop List. I wanted a way to share annually what I found to be the best of the best from my favorite places to stay in Italy to a truly special spot in Costa Rica. If you are inspired to travel more this year, perhaps because you perused our recommendations on the Goop list, hosting on Airbnb is excellent for people who frequently travel. The beauty of hosting on Airbnb is that while you're away, someone else can get as much joy from your home as you do. Alongside frequent travelers, Airbnb is also great for those who have extra space or an in-law suite that isn't always being used. If you've stayed at an Airbnb before, you know the unique experience it offers. Now you can share that same experience with others while earning some extra income. To learn more about hosting on Airbnb, head to airbnb.com slash host. Okay, let's get back to the conversation. So like for those of us who want to like, you know, metaphorically have sex with plants, like where do we start? (laughs) So those of you who are energetics, you're going to have a easier road to this. And and some of you who are shapeshifters who have a lot of energetic in your blueprint. And so part of it is tuning into if think of it this way, like you're not really, of course, having sex with a plant or a butterfly. (laughs) When I'm talking about this, of course, we're talking more like energetically. Everything has frequency and is energy and information, if we think of it like energy. And just right now, even you could tune into like the feeling of the sun on your skin. So if you think right now about the feeling of the sun on your skin, 
And if you close your eyes for a moment and you imagine the warmth of the sun on your skin and you imagine the sun as a lover and that the, the rays of the sun are now touching your skin and they're moving in between your thighs. And just as you imagine that, your body starts to respond. And we start to just connect in with the energy of something. So as we're connecting in with nature, you know, this we could call this eco-sexuals, people who really connect in with nature as their sexuality. I mean, nature itself is very sexual. We think about flowers and pollination and all of that. As you think about that and you tune into that, what starts to happen in your body. And that's a way that we can start to just connect metaphorically and energetically with life around us. It's just life. It's it's like it's ever blooming, ever flowing. To me, it's like ever orgasmic. It's birthing all the time. And so this cycle of life and tuning into that can be a really powerful practice. On the shadow side of the energetic is that they're so sensitive that they can short circuit, shut down very, very easily and quickly because they're so sensitive that if you go in too quick, too fast into their body, and some of you listening may may hear this and go like, that's me, you know, like, it's just like too much and, and you freeze up or your body starts to tense and you lose all your arousal. So I don't know if you've ever been in that like experience of like you're about to kiss someone and you're like, oh, the butterflies are going in your stomach and all of that's happening. And then you kiss and it's like, uh, it just like it, it, there's a letdown with the actual physical touch that can happen if it was just too much too quick and there wasn't enough time for you to really, really yearn for it. Mm. That's just one of the shadow sides of the energetic. Okay. Sensual. So sensual is turned on by all of their senses being ignited, taste, touch, smell. They bring the beauty to the erotic experience. So superpowers are the creativity, the beauty, the the ability actually to have non-genital orgasms. So they can have orgasms like say the back of your knee or like the nape of your neck or the nipples or something like that where it's not necessarily genital related, but the orgasm can be in the in the body. So full body orgasms, non-genital orgasms, orgasms from eating or tasting something, sensuals are most likely to be like, mmm. They're eating. <laughs> they, they moan a lot out loud, don't even realize they're doing it. And then the shadow side of the sensual is being really stuck in your head. So it's like you walk into a room and instead of thinking about sex and intimacy with your partner, you're like, oh God, that pillow's out of place. And oh my goodness, you know, I didn't brush my teeth yet. And you get, you start doing the laundry list of things that need to be do done. And, and so there's like easy distractions from being in your body because your head is chatting about, you know, this or that, the smells and the taste and the, oh my gosh, there's cellulite on my butt or whatever, you know, starts to arise in the mind chatter. Interesting. Okay. And then sexual. The sexual is someone who's turned on about what we think in terms of our culture is sex. So it's nudity, it's penetration, it's orgasm. And so we're turned on by those standard things that we think of as our definition of sex. And so the superpower of the sexual is that they can go from zero to 60 pretty quickly. And they can, orgasms usually come easily to them. They don't have a lot of shame about sex. Sex is easy. Sex can be simple. It doesn't mean necessarily that a sexual is simple. A sexual can still have depth to it. 
it's just that usually it's like, oh, sex is like pizza. It's all good. Like we're all good. We're having orgasms. Like what's the big deal? Why do we need to make it flower, flowery or, you know, colorful? It's this, this is, this is good the way that it is. And then the shadow side, then that, that ties in is that they miss out on the journey. Oftentimes sexuals focus on the destination and they miss that they, they're trying to get to that end goal of the orgasm because orgasm and the sexual release sex brings them relaxation. Whereas like a sensual needs to relax and have like toggles before they can get into sex. The sexual uses sex as a way to, re to relax and for everything to feel good in the world and to feel loved. It's like I can go out and conquer the world now because I've had this sexual connection and this sexual experience. But in that they miss all the other flavors and the journey and they have this very limited definition of sex as oftentimes mm -hmm. penis and vagina sex. And, and that's what equals sex or I need to have an erection or I need to be wet or there need, there's these conditions on what sex su successful sex looks like. And it's funny because in, in, and I know we have two more to get to, but it seems like our, our, from a gender perspective, are more men inclined sexual. to just be sexual and women are more complicated or is it really a mixed bag? That's a mythology that we've actually busted through the quiz that we have. We've had over 300,000 people take our quiz and we actually looked at gender within that. And what we found that was really interesting was that men were not all sexual. And I think it's a really good myth to bust because cisgendered men are often labeled as as easy or simple in their sexuality or that they're all sexuals. And what we've seen is there's actually quite a big mix with cisgendered men. Now, with cisgendered women, we have more of a sensual and energetic, but there's it's a bit higher in the energetic than the sensual. So people mm. often get advice like, oh, go home and give your guy, you know, these sexual acts and go home and do a nice hot bath for her. And that doesn't always work because we don't all fit in these boxes. Yes, there's a majority that is leaning more, a little bit more energetic and sensual for cisgendered women. And then for the cisgendered men, it, it's really, we have actually a lot of shape shifters, which is one we haven't talked about yet. But there's, it's like more of a diverse across the board with with that gender. That makes a lot of sense. I mean, I think men, yeah, men, it's, I think just because they can do it, it's perceived to be, as you said, easy. Whereas for women, I think a lot of us are scratching our heads because we're like, wait, you did what? Like you had how many <laughs> orgasms? Like, how did that happen? And I think that ties into a lack of education and a lack of research. We have just as much erectile tissue. The vulva has just as much erectile tissue as a cock-bodied person. And so that those things of just like knowing how does it work? How do we play with it? What's possible here? It's like having a musical instrument that we all have different instruments in the orchestra but some of us have been playing a trumpet like it's a flute, you know? Yeah. <laughs> so it's just knowing your instrument, knowing how to play it, and then exploring and, and, and getting the band together. Yeah. <laughs> how do we um, play together? <laughs> so kinky. Kinkies are turned on by the taboo. And there are two different kinds of kinkies. And let me just define taboo because taboo is what's taboo for you. It's 
it, that's different for everyone. So if it feels like it's like, ah, doing something I shouldn't be doing or like that energy, that's what I'm talking about when I'm talking about kinky. Because I think we kind of have views on this and I want to bust a lot of myths about what it means to have this blueprint because I think we think like deep, dark dungeons and chains and whips and like pain. And that's not what this blueprint is about, although that can be part of it because that can be the taboo for you. So there's two different types. There's the psychological-based kinky, and that's someone who's more turned on by, let me give an example. So let's say your lover is says, I want you to stand in the corner and turn around and show me just very slowly spread your legs and show me your ankles as you lift up your dress. So that would be an example of a little bit of psychological play where someone maybe is bossing you or telling you what to do, where there's a power dynamic of one person who's giving power or surrendering power over to another person. And so the turn on could be in any in either area, either having power over and playing with dominance or power that you're surrendering to another person and trusting them to take you on this journey, on this ride with you. And then the other aspect of the kinky is someone who's turned on by sensation. So my partner, for example, here we were, I was doing all these things to try to turn him on, but I was in the sexual blueprint. So I made that assumption, right? All men are sexual. And so in that assumption, I and I also have high sexual. So in my blueprint map, my highest is sexual. And so I'm approaching him from my own language and speaking a language he was 0% on our quiz sexual. <laughs> and, so, and I was 0% kinky. So you can see where the mismatch happened. Are you guys still together? Yeah, yeah, we're still <laughs> together. Absolutely. We, we cracked this whole thing. So... <laughs> So I'd go to bed, you know, at night and I'd be like, oh my gosh, let's have sex. And I'd be touching his genitals. He'd be like, oh, and he'd like, just kind of like not be into it. And he wasn't getting erections and like all this stuff's going on. And then I'd roll over and I'd start crying because I'm a sex educator. And here I am, like, I feel completely out of congruency with my own partner and I can't get him to want me. And I started making it about me where I was like, you're not attracted to me anymore. You don't love me. Like all these things that could kind of roll in your mind when you feel this rejection from your partner. And what was really going on was I, I was approaching him in a way where it was actually turning him off because he had zero sexual in his map. And then I didn't know that he was kinky. And this was six, six years into our relationship, I think, that he finally revealed that he was kinky. And I, this is what I do for a living. So I think about this ties into the shadow side of the kinky, which is the shame of mm -hmm. wanting or desiring something that's taboo. And so his shame was that he likes to be tied up, which is part of the sensation-based kinky. He likes the feeling of constriction. He likes the feeling of ropes on his body and what that can allow him to do to surrender and soften and relax and then, you know, I lay out the ropes once I figure this out, you know, I lay out the ropes on the bed and then I like, <laughs> like let me get my ropes. Yeah, he's like super stay. turned on, like I've never <laughs> seen before. It was so much fun. Yeah. So the, the shadow of the kinky is that shame aspect and yeah. the, can hide or can, you know, just make it, it becomes kind of like the only route to turn on because it 
is so taboo, the more taboo it becomes. And do kinkies even under, is it so shameful that they sublimate that that's even what they like? Or do they typically know and they just can't share it? Yeah, it it can be both. You know, there's sometimes where it's like, I've just never even tried that because that's too taboo. And then there's people who like know, they really know, like every time I think about that, I get turned on and I don't want to. And so there's that shame of, you know, I don't want, he kept coming to me and going, why am I like this? Like, why am I turned on by this? And eventually we kind of came to the the place of, you know, he didn't have any trauma and as you know, we can make up that mythology that, oh, there must be some trauma. And that's not true. That's a mythology that, oh, there's some trauma. And then that equals being kinky. That That's absolutely not true. But we, we were looking for those things as we were learning together in, in what happened that caused him to have those things. And finally, someone just looked at us and said, stop asking why and enjoy it. Like, play with it. <laughs> like, you know, you're not hurting anyone. It's consensual. You both want to play in it. You both want to explore. Go for it. And that really gave him permission to stop in the, like, why am I like this? And something must be wrong with me instead of just, no, this is how I'm wired. This is who I am as an erotic being. And that's okay. And then that freed him. Can I ask you kind of a crazy but appropriately goopy question? Absolutely. Do you think that like, and I, I want to get into sort of the nature and nurture part of it and and where these, how these identities are formed, but I wonder mm-hmm. too, if they're not, if we, if you for a minute subscribe to sort of like this past life idea and you think about maybe we've had many lifetimes and maybe it's like it was pagan, right? Or... Mm-hmm. You know, maybe his experience was, who knows? I don't know. It's just when you think about it as as potentially beyond this lifetime, maybe it gives yep. people more permission to feel okay with it. Yeah. I call them other iterations of ourself. You know, mm-hmm. if, we want, if we want to get really esoteric with it, a little metaphysical with it, it's like right now we're simultaneously living all of those iterations of self, many iterations of self. And sometimes we can tap into those iterations through these states of consciousness. Like kink is another area where we can go into ecstasis, into these ecstatic states. The the energetic blueprint is another one that easily goes into these ecstatic states. And so when you start going higher and higher into orgasmic bliss and you you start the, getting the neocortex offline, you start just like taking a plant medicine or a psychedelic it can start to link up other parts of your brain and you can start to actually experience these other iterations of yourself and in these archetypal energies. And so we've explored a lot of that. And one of the ones that, that arises for him is the energy of Dionysus, you know, the God of like dance, wine, Bacchanalian mm. festivals. <laughs> and we, we really quite enjoy that. And then I hold more of that archetype of like the temple priestess, you know, which ties into the energetic blueprint and many lifetimes of teaching sexuality and that sort of edgy edge of that witchy woman, you know, and, and so you can play with these in, in sexuality as a way of discovering who you truly are without the conditioning and the programming that our culture places on us. And the more that you go into these ecstasis states, the more that you can discover who and what you truly are. Yeah, it's so interesting. And then the shapeshifter, the final one is they're kind of everything, right? Mm-hmm. 
One piece I want to say about the kinky before we move into shapeshifter yeah. that I forgot is the superpowers. So I talked a little bit about these abilities to go into these altered states of consciousness, like subspace or dom space. And then also there's endless creativity. Like I can play in the kinky blueprint for the rest of my life and never learn all there is to learn of the creativity of human expression with these more taboo pieces of our sexuality that, I mean, if somebody's thought of it, it's out there, like <laughs> all the different fun, amazing things that we can do that expand ourselves. Truly, I believe that Kinky Blueprint is one of that, that taboo, dark energy around our sexuality can be a place of great expansion as long as we're not harming others. You know, in that, of course, being ethically responsible and having consent conversations of how we're playing and that we're doing no harm. That's a really, really important key. There's freedom of expression in that that can then release those energies. And there's so much that happens when we do that. And we need to do that within a safe container. Right. Because I would imagine that this is where like dominance and rape fantasies and stuff mm -hmm. like that comes in, right? Yeah. And approximately 60% of of women, cisgendered women, have those fantasies of being taken, of being ravished, of being out of control in that way. And so that's where those things can play out. But we want to play those out in a safe container where you know we're psychologically sound and where we have we, everybody who's involved in that has consented to playing in that realm. Totally. Yeah. <laughs> and so then the shapeshifter is the sort of the the cafeteria version of this where they like a little bit of everything. So the shapeshifter is someone who's yes, turned on by all of them. And they have so if you've been listening to this and you're like, "Oh, I kind of hear myself in all of these, you may be a shapeshifter." And the superpower of the shapeshifters, they have all these orgasmic possibilities. Like it's unlimited orgasmic potential or unlimited orgasmic possibility within this realm. The shapeshifter can also have all the shadows as well. But I'd say specific to the shapeshifter, the biggest shadow is that somewhere in their life they've been they, they've been told that they're too much. Like you're just too much. You're you want too much. You desire too much. Like can't sex just be easy? You know, like why does it have to be a three hour smorgasbord of everything? You know, there's there's been a shutdown oftentimes of their sexual energy and the bigness of their sexuality. Like they're the full symphony orchestra. Yeah. They're not just one instrument. They're the full orchestra. And so it takes someone who can play all those instruments. And then the other shadow piece is that the shapeshifter can, because they're great lovers, this is one of their superpowers, they can shapeshift to be anything for anybody. So they're a great lover, but they'll be shapeshifting to please their lover that they have. And if their lover is like, let's say, a sensual, then they're always playing sensual. And so they're never really fed and I find mm -hmm. that oftentimes the shapeshifters out of all the blueprints are the ones that are the most starving. And then the shapeshifter will have a secondary blueprint oftentimes. So like they'll be like an energetic shapeshifter where energetics kind of their lead in, or there'll be a sexual shapeshifter. And I'll say the sexual shapeshifters have the most voracious appetites. You know, <laughs> they're just like, ah, let's go for four hours with 10 hands on my body and like try everything, you know? So it really, that, that secondary blueprint really colors the shapeshifter in you. So we've already established that maybe some of this is sort of primordial and something that we've carried through many lives mm -hmm. and has sort of a pagany quality to it. Mm -hmm. But then in terms of sort of in this moment, in this life, is there any rhyme or reason to how we arrive at our blueprint and do our blueprints stay? I'm sure there's some flexibility, but are they pretty established? 
So there is a lot of flexibility in them and they can change and you can expand and grow them. So let me go first to kind of how our sexuality, our sexual identity is shaped. So a lot of, a lot of us get programmed early on based upon how we were taught about sex. And I get a lot of people who say, I didn't, I didn't learn anything about sex. My parents didn't teach me anything about sex. And I often argue you still got a sex education. The sex education was in their silence. The sex education was from the culture at large. Don't talk about it. Or, or how sex, sex was peripheral. You know, Was there an affair in your family? What did that teach you? Did you learn from magazines? Did you learn from movies what sexuality looks like? And then wh- how did that shape who you are as a sexual being? You know, Did you hear good girls don't growing up? What were the words said to you as you learned about sex? Did you learn anything in school? You know, A lot of our schools don't even have to teach medically accurate sex education or we don't have comprehensive sex education. So what that's the first unraveling is what were you taught and told and in who you were told you were supposed to be as an erotic being and and how did that upbringing then start to shape your own turn-ons and and that can very much show up in some of the taboo things you know if taboo is more of your turn-on then that might that might have just been a piece in you of like oh i'm not supposed to and then that is where the turn-on lies so there it's a combination of multiple things. And I'll even go into genetic material with trauma. You know, our, our trauma is carried down. Even if, if somebody listening doesn't believe necessarily in past lives or these other iterations of self, the trauma from your generational history is still in your DNA. And there's been research on that, that trauma is carried down in the DNA as much as 14 generations. So how is that then shaping your sexuality? And then the bigger question that I go to is then how do we peel back the layers to find out who we truly are? And my theory, this is just my theory in terms of what I've seen in the last you know, 10 years of really working with these blueprints has been that the majority of us are actually shapeshifters. But what happens is that we get conditioned out of our infinite selves, out of our infinite possibilities of what we can explore and experience in our bodies and out of our bodies, quite frankly, <laughs> when you start getting into the energetic fields, you know, we can, that what we can experience gets conditioned out of us. And then that shapes us into really one primary blueprint. And so, and then, and then a lot of people who identify as shapeshifters, they haven't fully gone into that because of that conditioning. So it's really that full expression of who we are as erotic beings. And to me, that is our aliveness. It's life. It's love. It's, it, it is unconditional love for ourselves from ourselves. And once we have that, everyone in the world gets it. Right. No, I think that makes so much sense. And then how, like, I probably put myself in this camp since I have two young kids and I'm living in a tiny house with my husband during COVID. It's not exactly like sexy time over here, Uh (laughs) but like, and, and that's, that's a curiosity for me as well, where I, I've had some trauma, et cetera. I, I certainly think that there's a part of me that's been conditioned to feel like it's dangerous to be desired um, and not necessarily something that you can control. And then I also feel like I think I'm an energetic person too. 
But then I'm like, is it a problem that I'm like, not frigid, but just a little shut down? Like, I know I'm missing out, but how do you, like, when I think about like a three hour marathon, I'm like, that sounds really unappealing, but Uh (laughs) (laughs) sign me out. But I know that's kind of sad too. So how do you coax people like back into the game? So one thing I want to say here is that there's nothing wrong. Like none of you are broken if you aren't experiencing all these things I'm talking about and all these unlimited like orgasmic possibilities, which there are, of which there are many. It's only if you truly like, I, and I want to keep coming back to this, like you are not broken you're normal because I think we live in a culture that's like a culture of constant, like more, more, more. And like, you've got to be better and you've got to be constantly growing yourself and, and all of that. And there's a place where we're already whole. And I think if we come from that place of I'm already whole and complete and I already am a sexual, an infinite sexual being, and we come from that place and then we go, okay, now what do I want to put on my menu? oh, I'd like 15 minute, you know, my partner pleasures me like a goddess session, you know, (laughs) or I want to do tease and anticipation or when we are more free to be a choice and we are no longer operating from the programming or conditioning. And I, I keep coming back to this because oftentimes we don't know the difference between what our true desire is, you know, and what is just our conditioning telling us that we shouldn't do those things or that that sounds exhausting or that sounds like a lot of work as opposed to wow why wouldn't i it's why wouldn't i want to go and play and be in pleasure and i think in some aspects pleasure and play are are shadows in our culture because we put so much value on working success getting ahead and let me tell you i've been in that box of like checking all those boxes in my life And I found out that checking all those boxes didn't actually bring me fulfillment. What constantly brought me fulfillment was coming back to me, to my body, to love and to service to others in in and out of that space. So when we talk about like, oh, let's do this three-hour thing and let's get back on the bandwagon, that route, I've never seen it actually work. But what does work is that It's kind of like giving somebody a a five-course meal and being like, here, this is what this experience is. Taste it, smell it, bring it into your direct experience. That's what that three-hour experience is, is this delicious five-course meal. And then once someone has an experience of that, then they can go, okay, that was amazing and that was delicious. Do I want to do that every day? No. But maybe like twice a year, that sounds amazing to go have that five-course meal and the rest of the time I'm going to cook at home. But it's so it's that giving somebody an experience and having the direct experience then helps motivate or I don't even like the word motivation. I like the word inspiration. Like let's inspire ourselves to do this. Not like, oh, I got to get motivated to like go do this or obligated to go do this thing. What mode, what inspires you? in your sexuality. And a lot of people have never actually been fed in their blueprints. So they just don't even, they're not even like motivated at all to do it because they've never had the experience of what that's really like. Yeah. No, it makes a ton of sense. And then sort of, I think, does everything that we're talking about translate to sort of the gay, trans, non-binary world? Is there, or 
like within, you know, typical gay couple, are they also mm-hmm. going to be sort of occupying various blueprints? Absolutely. So we also, in our research, we had all the different gender, we had, I think, like three, 30 or 40 different gender identities or something that we looked at, you know, identifications. And so we also saw with the trans trans women and trans men, we saw uh, a lot of energetic and kinky in in those blueprint maps. And so it absolutely applies. So if you're, whether your sexual orientation is gay or bi or pansexual, you know, I identify as very much pan gender, like kind of, you can call me any gender. I like to shape shift and morph in and out of playing with that and that identification. And so absolutely across the board. And we even see like people who identify as asexual identifying a lot as energetics and that really making a lot of sense to them in terms of, oh, well, that makes sense. I do have this, but it's just not so much in the physical body and I can feel it in the energy field. So we've had a lot of people really identify with that. That's super interesting. Yeah. So is the idea of being pan pan gender. So uh-huh. is that the idea that like you're fully when you are like in your divine masculine, you're like in your masculine, etc. Is it like the embodiment of that? Yes. Or absolutely. Do you really feel like a man. Yeah, it's it's embodying all the different energies, you know. Okay. So it's a lot of, it could also be like gender fluid, you know, being able to embody like playing with, oh, now I'm gonna play very much in my masculine energy and and playing with that very young. I, I also like the word young because that I think that denotes it a little bit better when we talk about like yin and yang. And mm-hmm. so my partner and I, we play a lot with with that variety of that's been an area that I've really expanded into, even playing with my own genitals as, you know, I have a vulva and a clitoris, but what if I play more like energetically with having a cock and how does that play like that can be super super fun too and so we've had a lot of fun with that and just expanding with that and having or energetic orgasms from that and there's so much the the world is endless like the possibilities is what i get really excited about are just absolutely endless of how you can play especially when you start to just kind of crack open and explore what is erotically possible do you so I would imagine, I don't know if you guys, I took your quiz, but it was a long time ago. Do you guys, like what, I'm assuming that based on our conversation, when as soon as we hang up, you're going to go and have sex, probably for the third <laughs> or fourth time today. But is there a range of sort of what's normal or and what's healthy? And are they the same? Yeah. So when it comes to what's normal and what's healthy in terms of frequency, like I actually don't have partnered sex with my partner, Ian, like a lot of people imagine, you know, like they'll put they'll put that assumption on of like, oh, yeah, Jai is having sex like three and four times a day or that kind of stuff. (laughs) And and so it's just fascinating to me how we think about that. And I think it really comes from your one hormonal makeup, like how much dopamine and testosterone are running, going back to those four things, like what's happening with scar tissue. Like you mentioned, you had children that can lower desire and drive. So what's happening in your neurotransmitters, like all of those things. And so answering that question of like, well, what's healthy? And I think that that it comes back to you and it comes back again to like trauma, conditioning, programming, and how is that affecting your desire, your drive, your ability to bond? I mean, there's some people who have tons of sex, but they have no ability to bond. 
Mm. So, or they, or they have a love lust split where they have lots of sex, but they can't, they just can't fall in love or Mm. they can fall in love. But as soon as they fall in love, they lose all desire for their partner. Right. And they no longer can see them as sexual because that then gets mapped on of like, oh, I love this person now they're the angel and I can't defile them with my sexual you know, energy. So there's all this stuff that plays into that. And so it really comes down to you becoming as you again, you're already whole, but there's there's this opportunity to strip back and discover more of your wholeness. Let me put it that way. It's like it's like taking a slab of marble and the the piece of art is already there and we're just stripping away everything that isn't it. And once that gets uncovered, then you can answer that question of, okay, what's a healthy amount of sexuality for me? And what's the quality of those sexual experiences? That's a really important key piece because you can have all the sex you want, but it might not be great. You know, my partner and I joke like there's in and out burger sex, which is a fast food chain. (laughs) And then there's like the 10 course meal, like I was talking about, you know, five course meal sex. And what's the sex that we want to be experiencing? Would we rather have a longer, you know, one hour exploration or would we rather have quickies? And we do all these fun challenges to explore that and play with that. And that's what's healthy for us. And right. then, uh, and then on the metaphysical layer, like I'm having sex 24 seven, like I'm making love to the universe right now. Like I, you know, I'm making, <laughs> I'm, I'm the, I'm the bees pollinating flowers. I'm the, you know, like it, it gets into like, I'm everything making love to everything. I'm the sun making love to the earth. And, and the, when you go into that space, there's no longer any scarcity around sex because you know that you're, you're making love 24 seven so mm. it just doesn't have a, and there's making love to myself. You know, I do that every morning. That's just part of my daily practice is having my daily O vitamin. <laughs> so I know you, it's I, historically, and maybe you still are sort of in an open polyamorous relationship, <laughs> but clearly like infidelity and single partners. And it, in your mind, is that is that sort of a... I would imagine people come to you trying to recover from affairs and other betrayals. Mm-hmm. And how do you, assuming I'm going to guess that your view is like sort of pro expanded sexuality and that that's like, again, like very normal, but how do you help people integrate that? Yeah, we have to look at it from, I'm always looking at everything from a very holistic point of view. And a lot of times, there's a great book called The State of Affairs by Esther Perel that I of really course. love and I highly yeah. recommend. But I see a lot of couples get closer through the affair because suddenly they're talking about things that they couldn't talk about before, You know what they mm-hmm. didn't love about their relationship, what created this environment for this to happen, especially if both people can look at it with self-responsibility. And so that can happen. There can also be this decision of, you know what, we, we aren't right, you know, like in terms of being together, there's a greater possibility for us maybe in having a different kind of relationship. Either that may mean, you know, if there's children involved that we're co-parents, but we're no longer romantic partners and just helping people to consciously do that process. And you know, there's also the book Conscious uh, Uncoupling that I love as well that mm-hmm. I would recommend in this case to really go through the processes and the practices within that. And to come, I had a, a shamanic teacher one once who told me, if you ever think about leaving a partner, fall in love with them all over again before you do. 
Like make mm. it a point to leave in love. Always leave in love. And that's been a practice of mine throughout my entire life. And and I'm happy to say, like, I've only had one partner who I don't talk to anymore. You know, like the majority of the people who've been in my life are people who've stayed in my life because I leave in love. I love that. So the idea being like, as you disembark, you remember all the things that made you fall in love with them in the first place. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And, and fall in love with who they are now. You know, I think we lose that. We put our partners in boxes oftentimes of like, this is who you are. This is who you're supposed to be. And we don't allow people to change their identities. And identity freedom is a whole other, that's a whole other topic I could talk about <laughs> because, you know, again, conditioning programming and all of that that gets layered in. And, but then we change as people, like our sexuality doesn't stay static. And th that goes into expanding the blueprints. You know, they, they change, we grow, we grow as people. We don't stay the the same. We're not the same identity. And so this practice of falling in love with your partner over and over and over again, and then this practice of coming to looking and self-reflecting on yourself when you're triggered, you know, when you're having struggle. And of course, there are some relationships that's like, get out. You know, if you're being mm -hmm. abused, you know, if there's true trauma, if there's a narcissistic codependent relationship there that really may need therapy and may need a removal of yourself from that place, please get safe and please protect yourself in abusive and toxic relationships. How do you, let's say one person listening to this is like, okay, this I'm into. Do you find that both people and partnerships typically are happy to have this conversation or how do you prime your partner mm -hmm. to sort of talk about like, hey, maybe I'm, a, let's take this test because maybe I'm a little kinky. Like, are there are there or do you do you find that typically people are receptive just because it is so primal and i think our desire to be held in that way is so profound and real mhm mm i think it's really important to come to this conversation with your vulnerability and your heart because for some people this is it's incredibly taboo to talk about sex i can't tell you how many times i've heard like we just don't talk about it because it's something that that you were taught not to talk about and we still are taught not to talk about it in our in our society. I think that's loosening up a bit. But just having this conversation, you know, I'm so grateful for you all to have me on to have this conversation because I, I think having a conversation that comes from that place of lover, you know, here, this is really important to me and here's why this is really important to me. That start right there of just here's here's why and getting to the the point of, I want us to connect deeper. I want this. And it's not that in, in making sure that they don't hear, because what oftentimes a lover will hear is I'm doing something wrong. I'm bad. I'm wrong. And then they'll mm -hmm. go into guilt, shame and shut down. And so it's really important that you come to like, you know, th speaking first to what's good in your relationship and what's been good in your sex life. Like, I love you so much. I love connecting with you. I love our way of connecting and I just want to take it like next level or I, I would love to just explore this even more deeply together because I want to create a lasting sexual relationship for a lifetime. So this piece of making certain that we create this longevity for a lifetime, I think is a really important thing to speak to in a relationship and to keep speaking to the love and to what's going well 
And then, okay, and now let's take this quiz. Like, now, let's take this quiz. This is really interesting. I heard about this thing. Like, let's find out what, what just like love languages, the, the Gary Chapman love languages, let, let's find out what our sex languages are so that we can take this deeper because sex really is our aliveness. Sex is something that we are all product of. And it's a really important thing in our own relationship with our own bodies. And it's an important thing in our relationship with each other. Thanks for listening to my conversation with Jaya. To learn more about her, head to MissJaya.com. And to take the Erotic Blueprints quiz, head to EroticBreakthrough.com slash goop. That's it for today's episode. If you have a chance, please rate and review. Hit subscribe to keep up with new episodes and pass it along to a friend. Thanks again for joining. I hope you'll come back for more. And in the meantime, you can check out goop.com slash the podcast.